0: Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Thirteen incredible additions to the Warner Archive Collection highlight this week's Warner Archive podcast with two, count of two, very special releases on Blu-ray for the very first time. The first is the maid of might herself, the wonderful Supergirl! Now, we're not talking about the current CW television series, that's a wonderful series, but we're actually talking about the movie Supergirl, starring Faye Dunaway, Helen Slater, and Peter O'Toole from 1984, making its Blu-ray disc debut in a special edition that we'll be talking about momentarily, but a brand new master has been created of the international version. Also a true horror classic from 1960 in MGM's British studios, George Sanders stars in Village of the Damned, 1960, not to be confused with the remake that came many, many years later. Then we have some very, very unique and obscure films from the 30s and the 50s and even one from the 60s that are all making their DVD debut. From 1930, we have Captain Thunder, Flight from Glory from 1937, Fred Zinneman's Teresa from 1951. From 1952, Roddy McDowell stars in The Steel Fist, and last but not least, a wonderfully enjoyable film about the early days of famous gangster John Dillinger, entitled appropriately Young Dillinger. Rarely seen in starring the great Nick Adams from 1965, all of those are making their DVD debut. We also have back-in-print TV DVD, Knots Landing Season 1, and some feature films that are filled with adventures and heroes that are back in print on DVD. Arrow Flynn stars in Edge of Darkness, Northern Pursuit and Uncertain Glory, while Bert Lancaster leaps across the screen in The Flame and The Arrow. And last but not least, both Gary Cooper and Charlton Heston star in one film together, The Wreck of the Mary Deer from 1959. So all in all, that makes up the newest releases from the Warner Archive Collection and it's been a great podcast. Thanks for listening. Oh wait! We <laughs> forgot to talk about the movies! Let's Start with the big, big announcement for the week. This is a title we've long been waiting to announce, long been waiting for a release, truly one of the great films of the 1980s. (laughs) There's Raging Bull, there's The Color Purple, Mm -hmm. and then there's Supergirl.
1: I was fortunate enough to see this on the screen with Helen Slater herself introducing it about four years ago, and that was the first time I had seen it. But it was so good to see Helen Slater herself introduce this and talk about uh what it meant to be plucked from obscurity really she was just a, a student newly at uh college to become supergirl and dan this is a pretty iconic
2: role in the world of comic books isn't it character dates back to the 50s superman's cousin escapes krypton uh, her whole city does and then her city gets sick and she gets sent to earth where her cousin finds her because everything's connected uh The movie takes a bit of a liberty with that story. Yeah. The great Peter O'Toole plays Zaltar, who's like... I mean, what's interesting to point out about this film, and I want to ask you about that screening, the years have actually been kind to it, because now we can approach it with with different expectations. And what a lot of people at the time couldn't grapple with is, like, the Superman, the Donner Superman. Right. It's very much a a mainstream entertainment and a science fiction film. In the commentary, the director... Jano Swark, he talks
1: about that his intention was that this was fantasy.
2: No, and it's very much like a 1950s comic. I mean, both in terms yeah. of the bad guys, we got an abandoned circus yes. or carnival, uh, amusement park, you know, and, and the character that Peter O'Toole plays is very much more of a wizard than a scientist.
1: There's a wizard and, of course, the main villain is a witch. And a demon she has so summoned from the how netherworld. How did the
2: audience respond at the screening you went to in terms of receiving the film?
1: The beginning actually is it has this sort of retrofuturist view, and and you know Kara comes out of the lake and becomes Supergirl in this film, and they were very with it. The part that stuck out for me and what really resonated too was when she goes to school and Supergirl, you know, tries the alien, the new kid at school trying to fit in who has uh, superpowers, one of which being the ability to change the color of her hair at whim. And her clothes. And her clothes really plays really well. When it gets a little more mystical and strange, uh, some of the audience, it, it, because it, it starts to take on this extra level of surreality that is kind of unexpected and still is today but this is, it's Strength because it almost becomes like a yes album cover.
2: <laughs> the plot all hinges around Peter O'Toole's character has saved Argo City from Krypton's discretion by bringing them to a uh, microspace, subspace. space. Yeah. inner space. Uh, he inner calls space. Calls which is like Phantom Zone adjacent. The thing that fuels it all is the Omega MacGuffin. And <laughs> is,
1: that, is and, that what you're going to call it? Because he calls it the Megahedron.
2: Well, he calls it the Rhododendron yeah. in um, the featurette. And so uh, Zaltar dropped the Omegahedron. And it falls into dimensions to Earth. And so Kara uh, volunteers... Because she was playing with it. It was really her yeah. fault. So she volunteers to get it back. And then, and of course, the benefit is that her cousin lives on Earth. Now, unfortunately... When she arrives, Clark is on an intergalactic peacekeeping mission. It so, happens. So he shows up as a poster on the wall. But Jimmy Olsen shows up, and Mark McClure is actually terrific in this and really ties the films together. They give
0: him more to do in this yes. than they did in the Superman And then
2: you're movies. like, they really should have given him more to do in Superman because he's good. Which is
1: true, and he is dating. You know, he works at a newspaper, and he's dating a high school student.
2: In all comic book fairness, he's dating Lucy Lane in the comics, too.
1: Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But Lucy Lane is, of course, Kara's roommate. So it's got wacky, And And she's hijinks.
0: related to, who is that? Oh,
2: sorry, Lois, That's of course. That's right! <laughs> bringing it all together. Is right! So speaking of bringing things together, this film's release history
0: not just theatrically, but on home entertainment, is very complex. It's a very checkered past, and it all really comes down to the fact that Warner Brothers, as owner of DC Comics, or I should say Warner Communications, the parent company as owner of DC Comics in the 70s, didn't see the direct value of bringing their comic book creations to the big screen in a serious fashion. And so they were more than willing to license the rights to make a Superman movie to the Salkins. Alexandra Salkind, I think that's how we pronounce it properly, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, had great success in the early 70s, producing back-to-back films of the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers with an all-star cast, including Oliver Reed and Michael York and Raquel Welch.
2: And Faye Dunaway.
0: And Faye Dunaway, yes. The intention was to duplicate that success where you would believe a man could fly, and so they focused in on licensing the rights to Superman from D.C., and D.C. and Warner Communications really had no problem with doing that. They just wanted to make sure that Warner Brothers had the first dibs on distribution for the Superman movies. Well, we all know how that turned out. It was a seismographically humongous change in bringing comics to the screen. Mm -hmm. And the Richard Donner Superman film from 1978 really is looked at as the watershed film Mm -hmm. on which all comic books on the big screen can draw from as the grand pappy of them all and so there was superman 2 and there was superman 3 and in the middle of all this the salkinds decided to make supergirl and that did not go through warner brothers the salkinds came up with uh different distribution deals in different countries Mm -hmm. and in this country it was TriStar pictures which Initially was owned by a Troika, HBO, Columbia Pictures, and CBS. That was the original intention, hence TriStar. TriStar. (laughs) In that each piece of the Troika would have different rights to the films that TriStar produced. Well, that didn't last very long because sooner or later Columbia Pictures basically swallowed up the whole thing and it just became a label of Columbia. But this was at TriStar's Inception. The first TriStar movie was the natural with Robert Redford, and uh, this was an early pickup as it were, for Tristar Mm -hmm. to make as an acquisition for the domestic market. And so when Supergirl was completed, the U.S. version was cut by about 15 minutes from what the rest of the world saw. And it ran about 105 minutes. And let me tell you, if you read the comic book adaptation first, which I did, (laughs) and then you saw
2: the movie in the theater, you were like, What This doesn't make any sense.
0: I'm doing the math here. It was 105 minutes, I believe, and the international cut, the directors completed Version of the film was 125 minutes. And that that is, in fact, the version that we're bringing you. And this is the first time on Blu ray and the first time there's been a high definition master. Right. A lot of work has gone into this and a lot of time. And most importantly, it's the only one of the DC Comics based films that has not existed in high definition until now. Plus steel. Well, yes, that's <laughs> true. We try just, to forget about steel, but you I to, don't. You yeah. Had I'm to with you had to remind
1: me. I don't know if you saw both Dan and I light up. We're like, uh Steel.
0: You know, it was an early one archive DVD <laughs> release. And we near, still love you, Shaq. Near and dear to my heart. Shaq, it is not <laughs> your fault. But in any event, through a series of trials and tribulations, the rights to Supergirl bounced from Various entities, and finally everything the Salkinds did that was related to the Superman universe and related to all those original contractual obligations reverted back to Warner Brothers a little over ten years ago, and will remain here with a few um, perpetual contracts that were signed overseas in certain territories. As an exception, basically everything has come home to roost in the land of DC, and we here at Warner Brothers very proud to bring Supergirl to Blu-ray at last. And we're doing so with not just the international cut. We're also including an extended cut that was released on DVD by another company in the late 90s And it is a longer version by about 13 minutes. And this does not exist on film. It was Frankenstein together by this other company many, many years ago. And all we could find after a global search was this standard definition, Video Master. So we've included that as a second disc in this release on DVD.
2: If you go online and, you know, like I said, you're online. It doesn't mean it's a fact, but... There's stories that one of their only sources even back then was one surviving print. So it's not a big stretch of imagination to go, that surviving print doesn't exist anymore. And even if it did, it wouldn't be a good source.
0: Right. And the other thing of it is, if it was truly a print it's very possible that it could have been succumbed to vinegar syndrome Mm -hmm. uh you're talking about a print that is now 33 years old a lot of the elements were overseas in europe we had a lot of elements here already we brought in all the elements from europe and uh the good thing is we now have the camera negative in refrigerated storage we now have the safety separations safely kept as well and we've created a new blu-ray master at warner brothers motion picture imaging that is probably the best the film has ever looked Uh, yeah
1: and i saw the international version projected and this looks great because the 35mm one it it was a little muddy i guess in the in the middles Um, in the middle ranges, and the special effects work and the matte work on this. uh, Matte work at the time has this very telltale, usually like a black line and stuff around it. I was incredibly charmed by the special effects on this.
2: And the scenes that are shot in natural light with practical effects look really, really good.
1: They are stunning. But even the matte paintings, and they go over where all the practical effects were in the commentary quite in detail, and the painting and like the labor that went into this is quite impressive.
0: So we should note that the uh, top-billed star of the movie was indeed Faye Dunaway. <laughs> yes. And if you think her portrayal of Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest was over the top, wait till you see her as <laughs> Selina in Supergirl. It is chewing up the scenery. There is a, a purposeful feminist
2: subtext to the film in mm. both the good guys and the bad oh, guys. Oh, yeah. Selena is very much fighting
0: against the patriarchy. And
2: also, Brenda Vaccaro
0: is actually really good in this movie. And this is Brenda Vaccaro in between Midnight Cowboy and being Joey Tribbiani's mother. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know. Right. And if you only know her from those famous commercials she did in the 80s, this is a refreshing change of pace. She was actually and is, you know, uh, thankfully uh, still with us and very talented actress. It's a hard edge to ride in this kind of film because you have to play it like it's Chekhov in order for the audience to believe. the yeah. characters, and this even is, though they're written a little bit
2: arch. And this is no insult to Ned Beatty's Otis, right, Mr. Luthor. Brendan Fraser makes it a little more subtle. I mean, he's not as she broad. Does.
1: It's a similar role. Also, as you were talking about with the acting, George, this was all shot in England, and all of the continental actors, even ones known for comedy, like Peter Cook, who's in this, they sell the ridiculousness of this movie 100%. And which to this very day, you know, when you watch Game of Thrones and other fantasies, having these well grounded actors sell these fantastic worlds to you is what really uh, helps. And again, That doesn't need CGI.
0: No, and you're dealing with a really impressive cast of Oscar-winning performers like Vey Dunaway, like Peter O'Toole, even though Peter O'Toole's Oscar was an honorary one. Really, I mean, the the South went after, you know, that kind of talent. And then they also had the keen eye to pluck Christopher Reeve out of obscurity. And, you know, this is a matter of opinion, but I think Christopher Reeve was the best of all the superman people ever best person ever played the role And uh, I have to say that the same wise casting, finding Helen Slater and picking her from obscurity and having... For a first film, her performance is really impressive. No, and
2: she later on showed that that this was not a fluke.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, It launched a very healthy career for her.
2: In another universe, she went on to appear as Supergirl alongside Christopher Reeve in a series of movies that are still classic. Because (laughs) she should have kept playing this role. It's just it didn't work out. In terms of box office, but she was perfectly cast, and yeah. and I think the uh, it was nice when she showed up on the newest incarnation playing. Carol Danvers. I think about Not eight times. She's she's
0: Carl's mother. Yes. Yeah. In any event, we could we could do, dedicate a whole podcast oh, to yeah. this, but by the time you hear this podcast, a whole Comic-Con panel will hopefully have been dedicated to Supergirl, because it's that special release that Matt and Dan will be participating in a panel at Comic-Con. Hopefully by the time
2: you're hearing this, I have a signed copy of the Blu-ray. Ooh. Both Helen Slater and Mark McClure, well, fingers crossed. And we We'll also be talking about the next film.
0: That's That's true. right, because in, in addition to talking about Supergirl, there is another panel at Comic-Con dedicated to genre films, and one very special one that we'll be talking about in a future podcast, but one that we're going to be talking about today is a July Blu-ray released par excellence, and something people really, really have been wanting, and that's Village of the Dam, the original 1960 thriller classic made at the MGM studios in England and starring the great George Sanders, a Warner Archive favorite. This is a great movie.
1: It's so good, and it so holds up that when you see it, and it's so influential, that even if you've never seen it before, you... See its influence spreading from it. Like, this is pre-Twilight Zone. Right,
2: and it's based on a book called The Midwich Cuckoos by the classic yeah. science fiction writer John Wyndham, And uh, no less an authority than Margaret Atwood. Calls mm-hmm. the Midwitch cuckoos a masterpiece.
1: Yeah, he also and, did
2: Day of the Triffids, which is the other sci-fi book at the of the time. The, this movie adaptation is very, very, very close. Yes. Uh, there are some liberties, but most of them you can actually see they make sense. But it is a very faithful adaptation of the book, and the book is super creepy and super clever in that it combines a whole number of genres and a whole bunch of societal phobias mm-hmm. into a very potent blend and then it, It has a bunch of super creepy kids who are led by the kid from The Innocents, uh, Michael Stevens, who's a great actor who decided he didn't want to be an actor when he grew up. Martin Stevens. (laughs) Martin Stevens.
1: His performance, again, when we're talking about finding the right actor... Like this kid is the creepy child. And oh yeah!
2: And in terms of the sci-fi, that's what sells it. I mean, there are mm-hmm. they wear oversized wigs, and there's there's an eye effect they do. But most of this Th- movie—that's the only special yeah, effect. Most of this movie is, has not special effects. It's people talking. Yep. In about a very tense, very uncomfortable thing. Now the setup, which I don't want to actually give. I know there's a very famous movie, but there's a chance—a very someone, good chance. Let's just say we just said
1: creepy kids. They're on the cover. Yeah. These creepy kids came from somewhere, so, and uh, they're not going away. One That's of the good. things
0: about this film that I think really speaks to how well-made it is is the fact that it doesn't waste a frame. No. It's a very modest running time, and the film starts right away with a bang. It leaves you on the edge of your seat. It's a thriller worthy of Hitchcock. Yeah, and it, it really has that step, kind I of, mean,
2: when you get to that end, the movie has faithfully led you to this climax. Yeah,
1: it's also a great telling and a reflection of English Village Life 1960. Yes. If you transposed this story anywhere else, and they actually kind of even hinted this in, in the film itself, the scenario, the sci-fi scenario would have played out very differently.
2: Well, and they, in 1995, right. they did transpose it to California, and it's a very different film. And it turns
1: out very differently because we'd be like different other. Wham, wham, wham.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This film was so successful, it inspired a sequel, Children of the Damn, that came out a few years later. But the original is what started it all. And here it is, finally on Blu-ray, finally in glorious high definition. It looks fantastic. Crisp black and white photography and a tribute to everybody that made it. We're delighted that you know almost 60 years later it still has the power to captivate an audience and is an essential part of anyone's blu-ray library village an, of the damned
1: an eye opening experience Ooh. Ooh, beware Ooh. the stare
0: in <laughs> no. hd Now, in SD, on DVD, we have five movies new to the format, and in fact, most of them have never been on home video before at all. What? And uh, they're all somewhat obscure, although one of them deserves to be far better known, and the other one, I would say... Two of them really fall in that category. But the first of them is Captain Thunder, a very early talkie from Warner Brothers, and it was made in 1930. And uh, this is a very interesting and unique film. Any
2: movie that opens with Fay Ray. Inner Underwear is an A-list movie in my book.
0: Oh, You just boy. add
2: a monkey's paw and you have an all-time classic.
0: Now, the people from Fruit of the Loom and Haynes are very grateful to you for that <laughs> endorsement.
2: Uh, so this is a, a Noble Bandito movie, probably inspired somewhat by Pancho Villa. So Maybe they uh, a
0: little bit by the Cisco Kid, A little too. bit by Cisco Kid, <laughs> yeah. Right.
2: El Capitan Thunder is abandoned, but he always obeys his word. And... Uh, he sort of becomes the accidental hinge of a, a romantic rivalry and a and a, a vengeance quest and a overthrowing a corrupt capital. It's Robin Hoody, but with a twist south of the border. But there is a frame up, and then
0: you have a bandit trying to come to the aid of
2: the the star-crossed
0: lovers. That's a good way to look at it. Now, from 1937, our next film comes from the studios, the hallowed halls of RKO. This is Flight from Glory.
2: I was sucked right into I, this I knew movie. It would be I mean, I'd never seen this movie, no. and I was shocked by how good it was, how smart it was, how pre-cody it was, but without being pre-cody. Without being pre-cody. It, uh, but
1: it's all right. That like it's it's almost like they figured, how do we tell this seedy story of a seedy business and a far-off land
2: and a love triangle? It is the airline at the end of the world, yeah, and the. The unscrupulous guy who runs the airline basically looks for disgraced pilots and he convinces them it's the opportunity of the lifetime and then he sends them out on suicide runs.
1: Right. So, of course, Van Heflin answers the call.
0: And this is a very unheroic Van Heflin
2: as he sometimes <laughs> played the this coward This is guy. a very
0: early Van Heflin yeah. before he went to MGM and became somewhat of a movie star.
2: And the, the protagonist is Chester Morris who excelled at playing deeply bitter oh. heroic figures. I love Chester He's so Morris. good. He's and so good.
1: He knows this is the butt end of the universe. Yeah, so Van Heflin
2: shows up with his bride, and Chester Morris is like, dude, not here. (laughs) And things get complicated.
1: Boy, do they quick. And they're they're basically flying coffins over the Andes to a mining town. And it's so profitable that the guy who runs it knows he's basically sending these flyers who have been suspended or are, are alcoholics. On a death run.
2: Yeah, and the film is very good. There's, there's an ensemble of these pilots, and we get to know the backstory of each of the pilots and how they all ended up on the flight from glory.
1: And if you have a flying movie, and this is actually a good trick, having most of the scenes not in the air, but in the little cantina where yeah. they wait between missions, this is where the, where the drama is. Yeah, I'm yeah. telling you, this would make a great
0: stage play. And then you hear off screen.
1: Boom!
0: Now, our next film is from 1951 and comes from Oscar-winning director Fred Zinneman. And this is a small film from a great director who would go on to win the Oscar for From Here to Eternity. A few years before that, he was basically under contract to MGM, where he had started his career making short subjects and graduated to feature films. And he had made quite a number of very important feature films and chose to make a very small film that has a very big message and a captivating performance by a young lady by the name of Pierre Angélie. And this film is called Teresa.
2: It's sort of an American neorealist or an American English kitchen sink drama.
1: It's definitely like the modern equivalent of what would be an indie film. Yeah. This feels a little more like The Search. Same director. Yeah. Yeah, Because after the war, and it it took a while, 1951, to basically talk about soldiers coming back into society after being through a traumatic experience and the unintended consequences and victims of it.
0: But I'm- if you think of MGM at this point, Dory Sherry being head of production, and this is right as he was transitioning into being head of the studio and the cinematic lynching, if you will, of Louis B. Mayer, with Dory Shari taking over the whole studio. Mm-hmm. Dory Shari was into making message movies right. and there's a big message behind this movie. But Teresa also really is centered upon this incredible performance from Pierre Angeli, who MJ was positioning to become a great movie star. Yeah. And she had very famous love affairs with some of the biggest names in Hollywood at the time and broke a couple of hearts along the way. But she never became the big movie star that the studio intended. And she died tragically young. Yeah. She had a very unhappy life and. Uh, she was like 39. Some of the people she was involved with included James Dean. She ended up marrying Vic Damone, which apparently caused uh, a little bit of. Uh, Unhappiness for Mr. Dean. Whether any of that, I mean, I know she married Victim Owen, but whether all the other parts are true, I, I don't know. But her performance in this film really was a breakthrough. It really put her on the map for what could have been a great screen career. And it was just uh, her own fragile personality. And uh, from what I hear, her mother's uh, manipulation had a lot to do with the constriction of her life and her career. And, and that's a lot of sadness. Kind in of
2: ironic to considering There's an element of that in this film, only it's the mother-in-law. John
1: Erickson, he plays the uh, vet, and it's kind of told in a series of flashbacks. Um,
2: Before, way before we talked about PTSD, that's what this film is about, and it begins with his character having a breakdown, and then he's getting counseled by his veteran affairs counselor, who's Rod Steiger. In his first role. Uh, And through his counseling sessions, the story unravels like an onion. Ralph Meeker has a good small part as a kindly sergeant. It's well shot. It's well made, the story is very moving, very disturbing. It's an MGM movie, what do you want?
1: Come on. It takes place in like tenement New York, 1951. And Mountaintop, Italy, and the...
2: Ravaged Mountain Village. Yeah, yeah it's, all, it's very contained and small and claustrophobic. And it's
1: very domestic, but it's domestic among these greater movements and the movements of two young people trying and finding love in war. Uh, it's just, it's so touching. This I, is
0: a film that a lot of people have requested. And like, why is this movie not on home video? And it never even was on VHS. This is its home video debut, now available on DVD. Fred Zinnemann's Teresa, we highly recommend. Ended. Yeah. Now we move from the Tiffany of Studios, MGM, to Monogram, where I, I thought the budgets say, were small, but their hearts were big. I thought you were going to say the tinfoil studio. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Roddy McDowell had graduated from MGM and when he was an adult, a very young man, he actually worked out a production deal where he had an active role in creating some of the films that he starred in at Monogram when he was in his very early 20s, and this is one of them, The Steel Fist from
1: 1952. I, I find all all of the films that we've watched from this period, uh, R- Roddy's films are fun. I mean, if you're gonna make an anti communist film, why not make a fun one where you got to get over the border and a cat and mouse chase over the hills of California, aka Hungary?
2: Yeah, Roddy McDowell, who I would watch reading a cookbook, yeah, plays a young student who uh is doing a student protest and they basically the... St- secret police are after him and he then goes on a harrowing journey to get across the Iron Curtain. We can guess which country it is but it doesn't really matter. Nope. He's fleeing from Soviet oppression into the West and he gets helped by the underground along the way and uh, there is some romance and there's also some menace. And... I
0: think that these films that he did were really, really impressive. Yeah. When you consider they were made on tiny budgets. Tiny budgets. And they're very taut, efficient filmmaking. They're really captivating and completely off the radar. Completely yeah, yep. forgotten. Nobody's gotten a chance to see them. Rare and hard to find is how we started our business and we continue to unearth these gems for you to add to your DVD collection. And we highly recommend The Steel Fist. The last of these noted DVD titles stars Nick Adams before he started as a Frankenstein in the mm-hmm. late 60s. He played Young Dillinger in 1965, and this is a film that feels much more modern than 1965.
1: I imagine John Waters watching this. Oh, yeah. Like in Baltimore Mm -hmm. and being like, huh. This
2: is inspiring, and the uh, the biographical details might not actually match up, but doesn't matter. But the idea of approaching Dillinger's story sympathetically and as uh, that of a disaffected and misplaced youth, matching what was going on in the thirties to what was going on in the sixties, is actually inspired and correct. And this film, among also has uh, Marianne Mobley, is great, and then a perfectly cast. Robert Conrad. Oh, I thought you were going to say Victor Bono. I dare you. (laughs) I dare you. Because who better to play Pretty Boy Floyd than Robert Conrad?
0: (laughs) I double dare you. (laughs) Uh, This movie's a ton of fun. It's really, really terrific. And the thing is that a lot of independent producers were coming to Allied Artists with small budget films and being able to get them made at a time when that was getting harder and harder to do. As Hollywood was tightening its grip on the bigger budgets and there were less films being made and they were being made in color and in cinemascope usually or panavision and a small little black and white film like this was becoming the exception rather than the rule and it took independent companies like Allied to back these kinds of movies. And,
2: and I know that the super cinephiles will claim that I'm misusing the word here, but there's also a, a real strong neo-noir going on in this film. Oh, because absolutely. he's Because he's a doomed gunman, he has his woman of freedom, but he takes it too far, and he starts believing his own hubris.
1: And it's also, it's supposed to be a period film, but it's barely in <laughs> the costume. The haircuts are not quite. It, it, <laughs>
0: it, <it's, laughs> it looks 60s. like the 60s, It's, the
1: 60s. it's, yeah. ca- it's casual violence for not 1965 is shocking, but that's something that, you know, three years later would become a big deal. But here it's just gun them down and get going, live free, live young, die. It's like it just doesn't
2: matter. Listen to jazz and yeah. hamburgers.
0: Yeah. yeah, man.
1: And that's what is so refreshing even today in watching this because you're seeing this like well, now a period film looking back at a period that's closer to when it was first made that's than right. we, are. we are now. It's now.
0: a 53-year-old movie. Yeah. <laughs> you have to keep that and, in perspective. And
1: their, the dialogue, it just almost feels improvised in some yeah, ways. Yeah.
0: It was very much an anti-studio movie at the yes. time, and we think you're going to surely enjoy it. And now we're going to talk about a TV series that we're bringing back in print. It was in print, went out of print, and we're starting with season one, Knots Landing the complete first season. Yes, it's time to go back to the (laughs) cul-de-sac. Knott's Landing was one of the great soaps. It was actually a spinoff of Dallas, and uh, it actually had a longer run than Dallas. Dallas. Yeah, and interestingly enough,
2: the lives of the middle class are just as complicated as the lives of the super rich. Turns out. Well, how many seasons was this? I believe this ran for
0: 14 seasons. I know a lot of people listening to this are going to ask the question, where are the other 12 seasons? Because, in fact, uh, seasons one and two were released on DVD, but no other seasons followed. And there are humongous. Costs involving clearances for the subsequent seasons that are insurmountable at this time. And there also is an issue involving how Lorimar produced these series and how they would need to be presented for new masters. That also represents a huge amount of cost. But I firmly believe that with the expanded media horizon and opportunities for people to see these kinds of programs. I get
1: what you're saying.
0: there will be a market opportunity Mm -hmm. that will support clearing the obstacles and the mastering problems that will allow for people who are passionate about this series to eventually have the whole thing. But right now, nobody can have anything because everything's out of print and we're starting the ball rolling with season one, Knots Landing, Michelle Lee, Joe Mm -hmm. Van Ark, great cast, great show. This is the first season now back on DVD. Also back on DVD, back in print, we have some great adventure flicks with some of the biggest leading men in Hollywood history and the first three all have one thing in common and that is they all star Errol Flynn and they were made right here in Burbank at Warner Brothers Edge of Darkness from 1943 and also from the same year Northern Pursuit and from the next year Uncertain Glory all of them Flynn at his finest definitely worth picking up then we move ahead to 1950 and Color by Technicolor as Burt Lancaster truly shows his incredible circus background and his uh, trapeze talents that all led for him to be able to gallivant across the screen in a swashbuckling Technicolor epic, The Flame and the Arrow, co-starring the lovely Virginia Mayo.
2: This is a great adventure movie. One of, one of the better made adventure movies ever. It's always great when you see him do the swashbuckling thing because he was also capable of being such a serious, powerful actor. But when you see the circus, that, it's, burn, it's just amazing.
1: It's like he loosens
0: up. Yeah. Man, He's it, having a blast, yeah, yeah. and you can tell. The last of these films is The Wreck of the Merry Deer, starring Gary Cooper and Charlton Heston. It was one of Gary Cooper's last films. And interestingly enough, what gives this film an interesting place in cinema history is is this was the property that MGM had signed Alfred Hitchcock to direct. Oh, and you Mm. can tell. He decided, "Mm, I'd rather make The Man in Lincoln's Nose, which was an original screenplay Ernest Lehman wrote (laughs) that turned into North by Northwest. So Hitchcock moved ahead with North by Northwest and Michael Anderson, of Logan's Run fame, directed The Wreck of the Merry Deer with Cooper and Heston in the leads and to great success. So all these films are now back in print on DVD from from the Warner Archive collection. Yay. And Warner Archive also wants to remind you that if you use and love iTunes and who doesn't love iTunes? I know I love iTunes. And if you want to own some of the best films, television series music, soundtracks, and incredible Warner Archive podcasts from our library. You can find them in our iTunes room, the Warner Archive iTunes room. You go to itunes.com backslash Warner Archive and you'll find great films from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and even the 70s, maybe even a few more recent than that, that have been specially curated and selected for your downloading pleasure, whether you want to rent them or buy them, add them to your digital locker. The Warner Archive iTunes room is the place to be in the place to find them. And there will be some new additions to the Warner Archive Room on iTunes very soon, so keep your eyes peeled meanwhile, we'll be keeping you aware of the changes and new arrivals to the room on future Warner Archive podcasts. But now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the sequence of our podcast where we read letters from you, the consumer, who go to the post office and mail an envelope with mm. a stamp on it and send it to us and we read it on the air and it's very, very exciting because it's our ability to communicate directly with you. It doesn't involve the internet. If you want to send us a letter, please send it to Warner Archive Podcast
1: B160 4. 3400 Riverside Drive Burbank, California 91522 Dan, didn't we pick up some interesting stamps the other day as
2: we went The Star Trek stamps They are cool They are cool
1: They last oh, for Oh, I've hours.
2: had
0: those for quite a while Oh, you're ahead of me I didn't even know they were out We were just in the post oh, they've, office They've
1: been out for a while yeah. Well, yeah. see, that's how often we go to the post office
0: I mm. went to the post office specially <laughs> to get them
1: Dan got two sheets yeah. One to use One to
0: use and
2: one to keep
1: This first letter comes from James in North Dakota dear Warner Archive, hope you don't mind my sixth letter to you, but it's a greasy wheel that gets the grease. Now I know you just released Lucan and a man named Shenandoah this year, and that is appreciated. But as always. Here are some more suggestions. Chicago Teddy Bears, The Cowboys, Time Express, and Hunter, the James Franciscus version, are some entertaining short-lived television programs. With all the pressure to get other more popular well-known releases out, please don't forget about these poor orphans. Moving on to cartoons, there was a Plastic Man animated series that came out on DVD. This included the first season and four episodes from the second year, but there were other second season segments that have not come out on DVD. Don't forget about these. There are a handful of episodes from later Scooby Doo or Dynamite series that haven't come out either, along with second seasons of Wait Until Your Father Comes Home and Filmation's Tarzan, which I'm looking forward to. I'd also recommend working on Banana Splits and the Chattanooga Cats. Issues have been reported on assembling the footage, but WB Archives has a great reputation for releasing these hard to release shows. And don't forget Symbiotic Titan. It's a fairly recent program that has its own fan base. I'd be encouraged for you to try to get more tv animated and classic releases out at least once a month or a bit more regularly it's been a hard few weeks for classic tv fans with the recent shutting down of tv shows on dvd and it looks like there will be even less news for tv fans so we might have to look to your facebook page and podcast to keep us informed of older releases thank you for all you do james from Williston, North Dakota.
0: Well, James, all those things are on our radar, and uh, we are aware of everything that we own and very familiar with the opportunities to release them, the problems that stand in our way when there are problems, and then the realities of what are the state of our elements, how many uh, of our employees are involved in other things that take up time. We have to be able to have a little room for everything. We try to please everyone, and we have long been aware that we're never going to be able to make everybody happy at the same time but we do our best to try to do just that and everything that you've mentioned is on our radar whether it will be coming out in the near future or not this we can't say but we can certainly make you aware that we are aware and we thank you for your continued support and we would urge you to visit our facebook page as regularly as possible and to continue to listen to our podcast and i would say you have excellent taste that's right.
2: Well, that's
1: why you put grease on the grease. Yeah. I put. Um, that would
0: make it grease too. Yeah. <laughs> double. So I don't oh, know if that's, a good that's idea. not excellent taste. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like to think of it as putting butter on my cream cheese on a bagel.
0: Now, I, listen, you're allowed to do that because you're from New Jersey and New Jersey is next to New York. So you have permission. All
1: right. Well, thank you. This next letter comes from David from Richmond, Virginia,
0: a lovely city. Yellow ruled. Now, did he use a an ink pen for this? It oh, this like- is
1: definitely an ink pen. It, it is it is blue ink and written in script. So I if it. I sound hesitant, it's not just because I can't read. Dear Warner Archive, Thank you so much for all the efforts you make on behalf of movie fans. I own many Warner Archive DVD and Blu-rays, and it's terrific to not only have the big films, but also the lesser-known gems like Three Sailors and a Girl. Who knew? What a charming film. Love, love. Oh, love McCray. He McCray. Means Gordon McCray. Yeah, Gordon McCray. Yeah, okay. See, uh, handwriting. I began listening to your podcast in the last few months, and I appreciate your fan letter answering. So here is my question. For the love of God, when will we get Judy Garland's
0: The Pirate, the Pirate. Summerstock, The Harvey Girls, and the good old Summer... Blu-ray. Well, those would all be very, very expensive projects because they are all involving nitrate film originals shot in technicolor, which means you're dealing with not one, not two, but three different film elements that make up the negative. And in the case of In the Good Old Summertime, we're also dealing with the fact that the original negative was destroyed in a tragic archive fire many, many decades ago. So those would all be challenging films to bring to Blu-ray, but we're up for the challenge and we hope to be able to do it at some point certainly all four of those films would look great in blu-ray and we would love to bring them to you so they're very much on our radar we just have to be able to raise the funds to do it
1: yeah well he says love you guys David.
0: Well, thank you, David. And we appreciate all the people who take the time to send us letters. We really love hearing from you. And we really appreciate all the kind words that people leave for us on social media sites, as well as sending in the letters physically.
2: And next time, David, if you send a stamped self-addressed envelope of a certain size, maybe I'll send you something that's off my desk.
1: Yeah, nobody sent a big envelope with an empty envelope inside of it. Now,
2: normally I wouldn't send anybody to Reddit, but if you do go to Reddit and look around, you'll be able to see what I sent to another fan writer.
1: It, it, It was upvoted consistently. Dan, would you say it would be a little bit more like the Doctor and the TARDIS if you put a bigger envelope inside Inside a smaller envelope envelope that would be bigger on the inside.
0: If you can just remember that bow ties are cool (laughs) and say Geronimo in the process then you're staying true to (laughs) 11. And on that note we must bid you farewell but fear not we will be back with another Warner Archive podcast next week but until that time I'm George Feltenstein.
1: I'm Matt Patterson.
0: I've lost the Omega Hedron. I must be sent to the Phantom Zone. Your suffering will be short. Mine. Forever. Thanks for listening and look forward to the next Warner Archive podcast.